I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we are able to correlate New Testament ideals with Old Testament texts to gain a deeper understanding of just what they mean for us. The book of Deuteronomy takes on the form of a suzerain vassal treaty. It's a document that was common in the ancient Near East between kings and nations. And when we opened the book of Deuteronomy, we looked at the parts of this treaty that were found in nearly every instance of these documents that we have in the historical record. And Deuteronomy has all of them. The first five verses of the book being a preamble that sets up the rest. The first four chapters of the book then contain the historical prologue. They recount the story of the two parties that are involved in the treaty and the history that's been occurred between these two parties, and all honor is placed on the suzerain. It describes what the suzerain saved the vassal from and how he has acted for their benefit in the past. The good that the suzerain has done is highlighted, as well as the evil that the vassal has engaged in towards the suzerain. Then in chapter 5, the text shifts to the third part of the ancient treaty. The topic changed from the history of these two parties involved to the laws that are now to be implemented within the territories of the vassal. And when we got to this chapter, we began to see ideas represented that are contrary to our modern sensibilities and ideals. In chapter 5, we examine the idea of law and how the ancient understanding of law differs from our modern understanding of what law is and accomplishes. For our modern minds, law is prescriptive. It defines all actions and all possible outcomes and defines proper action in all circumstances. In prescriptive law, if you come upon a situation where two laws conflict, then you're caught in a catch-22. No matter how you act, you will end up breaking the law and be guilty of that transgression. But ancient law is not prescriptive, but rather descriptive. It provides a snapshot of situations and then describes the proper way to act when faced with these situations. And frankly, to some degree, we all understand the Torah to act in this way, because we don't build fences around the roofs of our home. We don't take a spade with us and leave our property when we have to go relieve ourselves. We do not tithe fruits and grains and vegetables and animals. If the Torah were prescriptive, then we would have to do all of these things to keep the letter of the Torah. But somewhere deep inside of us, we all understand that the law is descriptive. It is examples of wisdom lived out into an ancient world. Now, while in chapter 5, we also recognize that the ten words that appear in that chapter also serve as an index or a table of contents for the remainder of this legal portion of the book of Deuteronomy. Each command of the rest of the book is approached in the order of the ten words throughout the remainder of the legal portions. And the laws that we read of in these upcoming chapters are as was just stated. 
wisdom examples that expand on the base ideals that are stated in the Ten Words. And so as we proceeded into chapter 6, we recognize that from chapter 6 through chapter 11 is an exploration of only the first word. I am Hashem your God who brought you out of Egypt from the house of bondage. Six chapters dedicated to delving into this ideal so that we can better understand just what it means for Hashem to be our God. And as we've gone through the first few of these chapters, we've begun to catch a glimpse of something that is often presented as if it came along much later, and that is the gospel message, the gospel that Yeshua proclaimed, the gospel that Paul and the apostles proclaimed. According to the author of Hebrews, the same gospel that is preached in the New Testament was taught to Israel in the wilderness, the very same gospel. And when we really dig into these chapters and that expand on this first word, we discover that contained within these chapters that expand this first of the ten words is a proto-gospel. The very same ideas that form the foundation of the gospel of the kingdom of God that we read of much later, they're all laid out here in the book of Deuteronomy. And for the last two weeks, we've begun digging into these gospel foundations. The ideas of faith and grace as revealed in the pages of Deuteronomy. But discovering this required that we go back to the ancient ideas that were contained in the words used to describe the gospel. Because faith does not simply mean having right thoughts without proof or simple belief. Faith is a word with a wide range of meaning, including faithfulness, truthfulness, and even allegiance to a king or leader. And when we incorporate all of these ideas into the possible realm of meanings of various occurrences of the word faith in the New Testament, we discover that more often than not, the faith that's described there is the faith of allegiance to a king. And grace? Well, last week we dug into the ideal of grace, and we found that grace in the ancient world was a word that was reserved for the gift that was given to a client by a patron. And so when we read of receiving grace from God, we found in the ancient world, there were a whole host of expectations of how the recipient was to act in response to receiving a gift of grace. And when we truly grasp these ideals in their entirety, we catch a much fuller answer to the question that's been asked throughout the ages of, how then shall we live? What should our lives look like in response to a declaration of allegiance to our King and recognizing that we have been the recipient of a gift of grace? And so when we get to this week's text, we find another gospel ideal represented in this chapter and a half. An idea that encompasses a whole range of words that get bandied about in the modern church, but which most of us, frankly, don't have a great grasp on. The words become Bible words, and that's the only place that they find their usage. And so let's open up to Deuteronomy chapter 9 through the beginning of chapter 10, and let's read. And as we do, let's turn our thoughts to the idea of righteousness and justification. And let's open our ears to hear just how it is that these ideas are presented in the Proto-Gospel of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 9 through 10 verse 11. Hear, O Israel, you are passing over the Jordan today to go and to dispossess nations greater and stronger than yourself, 
cities great and walled up to the heavens. A people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard and said, Who does stand before the descendants of Anak? And ye shall know today that Hashem your Elohim is he who is passing over before you as a consuming fire. He does destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall dispossess them and destroy them quickly as Hashem has said to you. Do not think in your heart after Hashem your God has driven them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness Hashem has brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wrong of these nations that Hashem is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess the land, but because of the wrong of these nations that Hashem your Elohim drives them out from before you in order to establish the word which Hashem swore to your fathers, to Avraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov. And you shall know that Hashem your Elohim is not giving you this good land to possess because you are righteous, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked to wrath Hashem your Elohim in the wilderness. From the day that you came out of the land of Mitzrayim until you came into this place, you have been rebellious against Hashem. Even in Chorev you made Hashem wroth so that Hashem was enraged with you to destroy you. When I went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which Hashem made with you, then I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I did not eat bread, nor did I drink water. Then Hashem gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were the words which Hashem had spoken to you in the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to be at the end of forty days and forty nights that Hashem gave me two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then Hashem said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought out of Mitzrayim have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded image. And Hashem spoke to me, saying, I have seen this people, and look, they are a stiff-necked people. Leave me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under the heavens, and make of you a nation stronger and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked and I saw that you had sinned against Hashem your Elohim, and had made for yourselves a molded calf. You had quickly turned away from the way which Hashem had commanded you. And I took the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands, and broke them before your eyes. And I fell down before Hashem, as at the first, forty days and forty nights. I did not eat bread, and I did not drink water, because of all your sins which you committed in doing evil in the eyes of Hashem to provoke him. For I was afraid of the displeasure and the rage which Hashem was wroth with you, to destroy you. But Hashem listened to me that time once more. And Hashem was very enraged with Aaron to destroy him, and so I prayed for Aaron at that time also. And I took your sin, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire, and crushed it, and ground it very small, until it was fine as dust, and I threw the dust into the stream that came down from the mountain. And at Tabarat, and at Masa, and at Kivrat Hatava, you made Hashem wroth. And when Hashem sent you from Kadesh to Arnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the mouth of Hashem your Elohim, and you neither trusted him nor listened to his voice. You have been rebellious against Hashem from the day that I knew you. So I fell down before Hashem the forty days and forty nights, for I fell down because Hashem had said that he would destroy you. And I prayed to Hashem, and I said, 
O Master Hashem, do not destroy your people and your inheritance, whom you have ransomed in your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a strong hand. Remember your servant Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Do not look on their stubbornness of this people or on the wrong or on their sin. Thus the land from which you have brought us should say, because Hashem was not able to bring them to the land which he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out here to kill them in the wilderness. And they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. At that time Hashem said to me, Hew for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain, and you shall make yourself an ark of wood. And I write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, hewed two tablets of stone like the first, and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets according to the first writing of the ten words which Hashem had spoken to you in the mountain, from the midst of the fire, in the day of the assembly. Then Hashem gave them to me. And I turned and came down from the mountain, and I put the tablets in the ark which I had made, and they are there as Hashem commanded me. Now the children of Israel set out from the wells of Bnei Achan to Mosherah, and Aaron died there, and he was buried there, and Eleazar his sons became priests in his place. From there they sent out to Gudgodah, and from Gudgodah to Yothdabah, a land of rivers and water. <clears throat> At that time Hashem separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant for Hashem, to stand before Hashem, to serve Him, and to bless in His name to this day. Therefore Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. Hashem is his inheritance, as Hashem, your Elohim, promised him. And I stayed in the mountain for forty days and forty nights, and Hashem heard me at that time also, and Hashem chose not to destroy you. And Hashem said to me, Arise, go before the people, and set out, and let them go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Soteriology is a big word that is used in academic circles to describe the study of the process of salvation. It's an attempt to codify this grand ideal, to strip it down to its component parts and understand just how this process works. And if you do a search for this word, you're going you're to find teachers and tomes that will take hours and hundreds of pages exploring this ideal and attempt to grasp hold of every nuance. And when you get into the study, there are certain ideas that are foundational to gaining a deeper grasp of this concept of salvation and what it means for us. And we've already examined two of those major ideas of soteriology, faith and grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 make it very clear that these two ideas are vitally important to understanding salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, and not a result of works, so that no one should boast. Very obviously, grace and faith are part of the process of salvation. But there's another aspect of salvation that's also a huge part of the whole process, and that's the source of righteousness, because it is righteousness that is the result of faith. Romans 10.10 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But wait, this says that one believes and it is this belief or pistis that leads to justification. Wait, you might say, that verse says justification, not righteousness. 
But that only depends on which translation you read. So let's define these words before we go much further. Let's uh, do righteousness first. According to the NAS in New Testament Greek lexicon, the word diakosune, or righteousness, is the condition of being acceptable to God. A person who is righteous is one who is without fault according to God's standards. On the other hand, dikeiu, or justification, is to declare, pronounce one to be just, righteous, or such as one ought to be. Now, these two ideas, they are bound up together. Righteousness is the state of being right before God. It's a state of being. Justification is the declaration of God that you are indeed righteous. It's a act of judgment. And as Romans says, with the will and intellect, the heart, one declares allegiance to God, believes, and is declared right, justified. And this is something that we have seen all along. Genesis 15, verse 6, And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. Abraham declared allegiance to Hashem and followed up his declaration by doing what Hashem commanded him, by setting up a covenant sacrifice, a treaty confirmation sacrifice, and this faith was counted as righteousness. Abraham was justified through his faith in Hashem. And this becomes an area of contention throughout the history of Israel. Where is justification sourced from? Where is righteousness found? And that is what this Parsha explores and answers quite unequivocally. So let's turn to the text and see what it says on the subject. Chapter 9 opens with the reminder of the promise. The gift that's being given as an act of grace, which is the result of allegiance through covenant to the suzerain of Hashem, the hope that is before Israel. And attached to this promise of the land that Israel is about to enter into conquest is the promise that their king will go before them to subdue their enemies before Israel even gets a chance to face them. But it doesn't take long to realize that things are not as rosy as they seem. Because being a recipient of a gift of this sort can lead a person or a nation into a lot of pride. And we see it all the time. I am in favor with the king. I occupy a position of high honor and power. I am important, and that makes me better than you. I have power and authority. I am to be the captain of my own destiny. We see this in the actions of Joab as the right-hand man of David. His role and his own sense of importance and authority led him to killing two men who had been declared right by David and who had been brought into an alliance. We see this in Haman, the right-hand man of Ahasuerus in the story of Esther. His role led him to forcing others to bow to him and show honor and deference to him and in tricking the queen into signing a proclamation to kill the Jews, including the queen. We even see this in the Jews of the first century. John chapter 8, 31-32 So Yeshua said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? 
And Yeshua answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring to Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have learned from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Yeshua said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did, they said to him. We were not born from sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Yeshua said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. The Jews who were present at this exchange, they asserted that they did not need what Yeshua was selling because they were children of Abraham. We've never been slaves of anyone because we occupy a place of great honor in the eyes of God. We are free men. How then can you offer freedom? And when Yeshua points out the fault in their thinking is that they are not acting in accordance to their father Abraham, the Jews go one step further and they accuse Yeshua of acting in immorality because he was conceived outside of marriage. So they attempt to flip the script in him by stating that he acts in the image of his own sinful father, and then they one-up their own previous statement. Oh, did we say that Abraham is our father? No, rather, uh, we have one father, and that is God. It's a classic riposte to the ancient Near East's honor-shame verbal battles of the first century. Tear down the claims of your opponent and then take your own claim one step further in your favor. In this, we see that the Jews of the time of Yeshua placed a large portion of their honor, status, power, and so on, on the who their father was. They allowed their proximity to God to fester into pride at their position, and that pride then led them to engaging in great tragedy as they then looked down on those around them. They forgot the lesson of Deuteronomy, a lesson of humility not pride. From verse 4 through 6, back in Deuteronomy 9, once in each verse, it is clearly stated that Israel is not the recipient of this good that Hashem is bringing to them because of their own righteousness or uprightness. There's nothing good in you that would cause Hashem to use you as his tool of judgment on these other nations. Instead of the reason of this choice coming from the righteousness of Israel, Hashem provides several other reasons for this choice. The first is found in verse 4. It's because of the wickedness of these nations that Hashem is bringing Israel into the land and driving out the inhabitants of the land. Just because someone else is wicked and has reached the point of judgment and justice does not mean that you are inherently righteous. You may look righteous in comparison to them, but you should not set your standard as simply being less wicked than the other guy. The contrast between you and them may look like a vast gulf, but just because you are some shades of gray lighter than their black doesn't mean that you are white. And unrighteousness before Hashem requires pure white. The second reason that Hashem gives for this conquest is found in verse 5. 
and it is this reason that led later generations of Israel to conclude that they had found righteousness because they were sons of Abraham. The reason that is given is because of the promise that had been made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it's an easy leap to go to the place that says, I'm okay, and I'm right and loved by God because God made a promise to my parents that I would gain a benefit for their faith. But the issue here is not the identity of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or of any of their children. The issue at play is the promise that was made. Making your acceptance before God an issue of identity It places the focus on yourself, but making it an issue of God's promises puts our focus on him. And this is the focus that Moses puts on this. Hashem says, I am driving them out in order to establish or fulfill the promise that I made to Abraham. And in verse 6, don't imagine for one minute that Hashem is doing this for you because of you. You have been rebellious and stubborn since day one. I mean, we hadn't even left Sinai before you screwed up and made a graven image to bow down before in worship. It wasn't even 40 days before you screwed everything up. And in this, verse 7, that Moses begins to recount the story of the events at Mount Sinai, called Chorev in the book of Deuteronomy. I went up to the mountain for 40 days in order to receive the words of the covenant that had been spoken, and that you agreed to, and that Hashem carved with his very own finger. Two tablets. Now, this is something that gets lost in our modern understanding, but these were not two tablets with one half of the ten words on one and the other half of the ten words on the other. Rather, this was a written covenant. Two copies of the words of the covenant. It was customary to have one copy for each party. And so these tablets were duplicates, and the existence of two speaks of the words of these tablets being binding in the terms of the covenant. Anyway, God gave Moses these tablets, and at the end of 40 days, God informed Moses that the people were already rebelling. These are a stiff-necked, rebellious, or unable-to-be-turned people. Now, this idiom, stiff-necked, it's derived from a farming practice of harrowing or plowing, and the word picture that it describes is poignant and helpful. When plowing in the ancient world, the plow was usually drawn by two oxen. The plowman would use one hand to guide the plow as he walked beside the oxen, and in the other hand he carried an ox goad. It's simply a light pole with an iron spike on the end. When an ox wandered off the intended path, the plowman would prick the ox upon the hind legs to increase their speed and upon the neck to turn them and to keep them on a straight course. If an ox was hard to control or stubborn, if the plowman had to employ the goad too often, then the oxen was termed hard of neck or stiff-necked. A stubborn service animal that was more interested in doing their own will rather than in doing their master's bidding. And it's this image that is then directed toward Israel. You are too stubborn to be led easily. You keep wandering off into your own path and ignoring the guidance of a light hand. Instead, the prod must be employed to keep you in line. And verse 22 highlights several instances where the prod was employed on their journey from Sinai to Shittim. 
And between verse 14 and 22, we read of the lengths that Moses went to to save the people from the wrath of judgment of Hashem. You see, Hashem was angry with you all. You had just been given the instructions on how to act in relationship to your God. It was only ten things, and you couldn't even keep just ten. You broke the covenant, so when I came down the mountain, I acted that out. I broke the tablets of the covenant because they were worthless now that you had done all of this. And then I fasted for forty days and forty nights, pleading before Hashem for your lives. He wasn't only angry at the people, Hashem was angry at Aaron too and wanted to kill him as well, but I pled for his life as well. And the sin that you committed, I destroyed it. I ground it down to dust and I washed it away in the stream. Your sin was wiped away and it was no more. Moses engaged in an act of mediation between Hashem and Israel, pleading for their sins to be forgiven. And Moses took the sin of the people and washed it away. We get in this story a clear foreshadowing of Yeshua's role as Messiah, to act as mediator between God and man and to wipe away the sins that have beset the people of God. And as we're going to see shortly, the act of mediation by one who has a close relationship with Hashem is essential for the process of justification. And so Moses spends 40 days in intercession on behalf of the people. But when exactly does verse 23 through 29 take place in the story? Is this speaking of after the events with the golden calf? Or are these verses speaking of a previously unstated 40 days of intercession after the events at Kadesh Barnea, which is the event that's recounted leading up to these verses? Now, the text is not extremely clear on the timing of this intercession that's recorded here. I lean towards the second 40 days at Mount Sinai, because chapter 10 then returns to those events at Mount Sinai. But then again, it really doesn't matter, does it? When specifically the story is speaking of? Because Moses makes the same plea to Hashem at both times, Exodus 32 and Numbers 14. You can't destroy these people now. Not after what you did for them in Egypt and after you declared to the world what you are planning for them. If you wipe them out now, then you, Hashem, you would lose your reputation among the nations. No one would ever trust you again. You would lose face. You would lose honor. These people, this stubborn, stiff-necked, and rebellious people, they are your inheritance. You chose them to be yours. So please forgive them and do not look on their sins. This is the act of intercession by Moses that leads to something that for many is a purely New Testament idea. A new covenant. A renewal of the covenant that had been broken. And that's where chapter 10 begins. The covenant that had been broken was reforged. Not a different covenant. The same terms of the previous covenant. And there is a difference in the new covenant. This new covenant is one that's based on Hashem's forgiveness of sin. And this new covenant is one that was arrived at through an act of intercession. The first covenant, the agreement at Sinai, it was based on the people's agreement to hold to the terms of the covenant. All that Hashem has said we will do, the people declared three times surrounding that first covenant. And it wasn't even 40 days before that covenant was null and void. 
This first covenant was a covenant based on human action, and it failed miserably. But the renewed covenant, this renewed covenant is not based on the people's agreement to keep the terms, but it's rather based on and demonstrating Hashem's forgiveness of sin and transgression. It's a covenant that lasted more than a millennia before it was broken by people to the point of the entirety of Israel falling under judgment once again and in need of renewal. Even the second form of the covenant passed away and was nullified. A covenant based on human righteousness? Impossible. A covenant based on forgiveness and accomplished through a mediator? The only possibility for a lasting covenant with a holy God. And that is the point of the text this week. We are completely incapable of keeping the covenants of God to the point of being declared righteous. As Ray Comfort puts it, if you have stolen anything even once you are a thief, if you have lied even once you are a liar, if you have engaged in sex outside of marriage even once you are a fornicator, and the list goes on and on. All it takes is a single sin in your lives and you are a sinner. And if you are a sinner, it is impossible to be judged as righteous before God. It's impossible for man to be justified based on his own merits. And in this we discover that justification is then not based on what we are able to do. It has no connection with our own actions, whether righteous or wicked. Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Yeshua, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. In this passage there is evidence to suggest that the works of the law speak specifically about a ritual proselyte conversion. The thought of becoming a Jew through human ritual and gaining the righteousness of having Abraham as their father. The place that many early Jews sourced their righteousness as we've already seen and discussed. But then Titus 3, 4-7 But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out on us richly through Yeshua Messiah, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This goes beyond sourcing our righteousness in our bloodline and our kinship bonds, it goes into all areas of human achievement. It is impossible to be justified by your works. It cannot happen because you are a sinner regardless of what you do. Your acceptance before Hashem is not based on your own standard of righteousness. You are completely incapable of living up to the standard of being declared righteous based on your own deeds. And so a mediator is necessary. One who will stand and make intercession before the Father on our behalf. And even the mediation of Moses broke down and failed. Fortunately, our mediator is no longer Moses. Hebrews 7.25 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. From this we can see how the covenants of God progress through time. And from the covenant based on the ability of man to keep the terms of the covenant, a covenant that didn't even last 40 days, to a covenant based on the mediation of Moses and the forgiveness of Hashem, a covenant that lasted for a thousand years until the sins of Israel reached the point where they could no longer be overlooked, and then a new covenant sealed by the blood of our Messiah, a covenant based on the righteousness of a single man who was declared right before Hashem, a covenant based on the mediation of this new man, the man willing and able to come under the judgment of the Most High God, and the man willing to place himself in this place of judgment on our behalf, the Son of Man, the humble servant elevated to the position of the High King, the one who lived out and demonstrated through word and action the fact that Hashem alone is righteous when it comes to judgment. And so the justification and righteousness of salvation is indeed found in allegiance to Yeshua alone and is received as an act of grace from the patron of the universe. And righteousness and justification are not found within ourselves, but is instead the thing that is given as an act of grace of Hashem. But there's more to righteousness than the imparted righteousness of Yeshua onto us. Because as we grow and learn to live in the righteousness of Yeshua, we should begin to take on these characteristics of righteousness in our own lives. And in this, our faith and allegiance, it's not a stagnant one-time event. These become an ongoing practice, every day a new opportunity to act in righteousness. And so justification is not found solely in the declaration of allegiance as a gift of God. Justification becomes a partnership of action lived out. It's a process that begins with the Pledge of Allegiance, but then works its way out into every part of our lives, including our actions. James 2, 17-26 So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be known, you foolish person, that the faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And in this lies the conundrum of the life of Israel. We are justified before God not by what we do but by Yeshua alone. But then once we have pledged our allegiance and received our gift of grace, our lives must be accompanied by works. Because allegiance sworn as mere lip service, it's a dead faith. That kind of faith is completely unable to save. 
But even in this, it's not us who accomplish these good works. It's not of human ability to be able to accomplish these acts of faith. Philippians 2, 12-16, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. These acts of righteousness are evidence of a life that has been touched by God and has been indwelled by his Holy Spirit. So even the righteousness that we participate in after we come into the nation of Israel is not our own. It's what Deuteronomy says, When you are in the land and at ease, do not even think that it is because of your own righteousness that you have gained this good thing. And it's not because of your own righteousness that you do the good things that you do now. The only reason that you are able to even act in true righteousness is because God is working through you. Now, this is very hard for us to actually incorporate into our lives because we are beings of pride, especially as modern Americans, because we have been raised on the Disney ideal that you are the center of your own story and the things that matter to you actually matter. And as the center of your story, how could you be anything but proud of what you do and what you've accomplished in your life? For most of us, the addition of Hashem to the contemplation of our lives is a mere afterthought. Our thoughts and our actions, well, they're our own. But acting in righteousness requires humility. And again, we find that this was modeled perfectly for us by our Messiah. He did not preach or point to his own righteousness. He pointed to the righteousness of Hashem. He walked in humility, and he acted in service to all that he met. Like David, he did not claim the throne for himself. Instead, he served, and he died in service and in humility. And it was this. His ability to recognize and to act in the fullness realization that his will did not lead to his elevation. His willingness to step in and do the difficult things when Hashem requested it of him, even to the point of death on a cross. And his example, it shines a light for us to see. It provides the groundwork for where we should begin our lives of faith, with the recognition that we are, in fact, incapable of doing anything truly righteous without God. And without him we would be incapable of being called righteous or achieving any form of righteousness. Justification before Hashem and judgment would be impossible without Yeshua, because we would still be steeped in our sin and we would still be identified by the evil that we have done. But with the blood and the intercession of Yeshua and the forgiveness of God, we are no longer identified in this way. We are no longer sinners. We are no longer wicked. We are no longer of the nations. We are no longer evil. We are Israel. We are justified. We are clean. We have been imparted righteousness, and we have been declared righteous. All that's left then is to walk in that righteousness that's been prepared for us.
So continue to walk in that righteousness as you derish chai, as you seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.